Welcome to the Native Artist Podcast from Indigify, sharing the unique stories and perspectives of Indigenous artists. My name is Tomas Carmelo Amaya. I am Yoeme and Ashri on my mom's side and Raramuri on my father's side. I'm a film director, writer, cinematographer, and photographer. I had first heard of Tomas's work by watching a music video he directed. I was so impressed by how he works with light as a cinematographer, creating moods and at many times capturing his subjects with the beauty of natural light. His unique eye and passion for cinematic art can be seen in the way he takes portraits, often backlit or shot at a low angle, which places the talent in a striking and powerful pose. His work has been published in the New York Times, BuzzFeed, The Guardian, BBC News, among several others. Film and photography hold a lot of power in how our communities are presented to the world. As natives navigating this field, it's part of restoring truth and plays part in the greater journey in taking back Indigenous narratives. I'm your host, Alexis Salih. Stay with us as we speak with Tomas Carmelo Amaya. Thank you for joining us for the Native Artist Podcast, where every week we're going to speak to a different artist that is working in different mediums from directing to writing to poetry to carving, painting. And today we have a really good friend of mine who I've actually been able to work with on a few projects. So I've got to really know you and your story, and it's really good to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Elekwa, thank you for having me. This is um, a special situation right now. Yeah, <laughs> this really? is good. It feels good. <laughs> yeah, and then we're here in your hometown of Phoenix, which is great. Uh, you know, this is my second time here. It's tougher. An Inuit woman, <laughs> it's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's 50 degrees in this establishment right now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good to have you here. And I, I want to talk a little bit about your story. You know, like I said, we've been able to sit together and really share deep conversations. And, you know, I'm from the North, you're down here from the Southwest. And even though our cultures are very different as Indigenous people, we share a lot of the same values. You know, there's a lot of things that we both feel really strongly about as Indigenous people. So I want to talk about your story. And I know a lot of it started with writing and poetry before you got into filmmaking. A big influence for you is your father and his creative spirit that he has. You told me about the love letters he would write your mother, and that really inspired you to get into writing. Tell us a little bit about that. Definitely. The influence I have from my parents is really impactful on my art and how I approach art. My parents fell in love at a fairly young age, and they were both born in Juarez, Mexico, Chihuahua, Mexico. And what I loved hearing growing up was stories about things that they would do. One of the things that my dad would do is create things with his hands for my mom. Like presents? Little presents, like out of wood, out of scraps of wood. And he would write to her. Uh, my mom always talked about how that was special and how that, that made her feel. And so picking up on that, I started to get a sense of what it's like to honor somebody, what it makes someone feel like, and how it's also reciprocated, that feeling, that good feeling. There was a lot to take away from that. And my dad ended up working in construction for many years. 
And I would go to uh, job sites with him and I would learn work ethic. And I really saw the, the amazing work he did in the attention to detail. And I could see that while it was construction, you know, in different parts around Phoenix and the surrounding areas, that attention to detail was very reminiscent of his poetry and the way that he would write to my mom in a way. Like I saw that connection, like he took a lot of care. And when I would help him and work with him over the summer, he would tell me like, you need to do this a little bit better. You got to leave that a little cleaner. This line needs to be a little bit better. Quality was the really quality important. because this is going to be somebody's home. Mm-hmm. And there was honor in that work. And I always took that away from that experience. There's just so much to talk about as far as like his personal healing journey, my mom's healing journey from different things that have happened to her in her life. I'm blessed to have that creativity from both sides. My mom, she doodles, Mm -hmm. but it's actually really brilliant doodling. The thing I pick up from my mom quite a bit is the resiliency. She's had a number of accidents happen to her through her life, even being run over Oh my gosh. Uh, as a child when she was two years old. Wow. She's had car accidents and things that have happened to her. And, and one event in particular was a, a hemorrhagic stroke that she uh, recovered from. And part of that recovery, though, was a lot of love from the family, a lot of encouragement. But we know that that's also part of her own resiliency. And one of the signs to me that she was doing better is this one amazing sketch that she made as she was recovering and she had to learn how to talk and walk again. And so I'm like, okay, that's, you know, that's what I'm made of. I'm made, you know, from my mom, my dad. (laughs) (laughs) The connection Tomas has with his family, culture, and traditional teachings heavily influence him in the way he works, showing dignity and respect for the people and communities he films and photographs. When you think about your creative style and how you do a lot of the work that you do, how have you found your unique like fingerprint in the work mm. that you do? Uh, that's a great question. The unique fingerprint would be from the writing, the writing aspect. There's a lot of storytelling. As an indigenous person, storytelling is very central to my life and to my family's life. And so I grew up around a lot of people that were great storytellers from an oral tradition. Like I said, even even my father would write notes on the back of credit card statements and envelopes. <laughs> to me, that's still writing. To me, it's still poetry. And even my mom, when she wanted to express certain things to us during hard times too, she would write it out. And that to me is, again, poetry. It's expression. It's storytelling. And so I was about six and a half or seven years old and my maternal grandmother passed away and I wrote her a poem. And when I wrote that poem, I compared her passing as the graceful descent of an eagle feather. The older people in my family noticed that as being special in the way that I wrote that poem. And so they encouraged me to write and they encouraged me to continue expressing myself. And you were really young, right? I was really, really young. At that point, I was probably drawing more than I was writing, but then I knew that I should keep up with the writing. So that writing perspective continued and was receiving some attention from teachers and feedback, and they encouraged me. People were saying, ooh, that boy can write. Yeah, the stuff like that. Actually, (laughs) The craziest thing, and and I wrote a poem in in high school, and I think later on when I was in college, I had, through social media, someone hit me up, and they're like, 
I read that poem you wrote in high school every day. Wow. Like I still have it. And I was like, oh, dang, that's like, that means a lot. I don't, I, I would never think that someone's doing that. And, yeah. like, and it was like this really, you know, I remember she was a very um, outgoing personality and she was one of my peers in one of my classes, but I don't remember her name, but shout out to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're listening out there, thank if you. If you're listening out there, yeah, thank you. But then when it got to the university level, on my mom's side, I'm also a descendant of traditional healers. And so I thought I was going to go into medicine. I thought, okay, this is the journey. And I was taking science classes and I definitely had a non-traditional journey in school in general. In college, I had to make a choice. Okay, am I going to do this med school route? And if so, what does that entail? It was like, okay, I'm going to do engineering or biomedical engineering, something that is close to that field. And then I found out I can complete a degree in the humanities and still apply to medical school. And I'm like, okay. I'm good at writing. I'm going to keep up with that. What I found out was that I was definitely healing through writing and that my openness and my ability to really convey certain concepts was getting better over time. And I remember I wrote a poem that's titled The One Who Needs the Least. And I talk about my grandfather on my dad's side, who was a very stern person or was a very stern person. And at the same time, he had this love for plants and he grew some of the most beautiful and fruitful plants in Juarez, a very dusty town. And so I wasn't afraid to talk about my grandfather's not so, I would say, shining qualities, but I definitely wanted to talk about and honor the good things about him. If I look back now with the experience that I have, I was very much addressing historical and intergenerational trauma, but in a poetic way. And now I'm understanding it more and I'm really wrapping my head around it. Like you were doing it unconsciously, yeah, sort of? that poem, I kid you not, I wrote that poem probably in less than an hour. And there are elders and mentors that say when those words flow like that from the heart and they just fall in place, it's bigger than ourselves. So I felt like that was my ancestors writing. The one who needs the least, why it ends with that is that my dad talks about a time in his life where he was so impoverished where he didn't have shoes and he was on the streets of Juarez, but he was so happy, absolutely happy. And he shared with me one of his teachings that was also shared with him that the richest person is not the one who has most, but the one who needs the least. So are we content with what we have? Do we always need to search for more? What is it that we need? That to me was a very beautiful notion. And despite the different things that affected his life growing up, you know, substance abuse and, and other things that affect a lot of families. It was amazing for me and such an inspiration to see him rise above that trauma. And same for my mom, to rise above that trauma. To me, it was like, we can break cycles. We can change the norm. Can it be done? Yes, it can be done. It's not perfect. It's not easy. We had a lot of hard times as a family. And I'm grateful that you were able to visit and pick up on good feelings. It took a lot to get there. And we're continuously still working on the best ways to be good family members to each other, to care for each other. As we grow older and the family grows and people get older. And talking about breaking that cycle, in your photography, for instance, you do a beautiful job of honoring people and honoring the land in your visual art. As a photographer, 
What sort of mindset do you bring to a project when someone wants to work with you or hire you? The place to start there is intention. I feel like that's another indigenous quality to be intentional and to know where those intentions are coming from. When I approach a new project and I'm asked to be part of a project, I frequently start off by saying, my intention is to honor you. My intention is when we create a photograph, when we create an image together or a project, and even if you see yourself in it, say you are on the other side of the lens, when you look at that image, I want you to feel good about yourself. I want you to feel like you're representing yourself and your family and your people in a good way. That's my intention. So that tends to help people and it brings people at ease because I'm very mindful of angles, of lighting, all these different nuances that go on into creating an image really can change our perception of somebody. In putting all these elements together in a collaboration, it can really affect what that overall impression is to everybody else. And I'm very careful with that. I'm very mindful of that. And so it just goes back to that honoring. And regardless of you know, where I am, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of some of the tools that I have, there are times that I'm very fortunate to work with very expensive tools. And there are times that I don't have them and there's no budget for it. But that doesn't mean I can't lead with that intention of wanting to honor somebody and to make them say, thank you for creating this or for us creating this. I like it. I feel good. It makes me feel good about myself. Obviously, there's a certain level of choice to say, well, let's focus on these qualities or on this part of your journey. But it's about having that collaborative spirit and being careful and mindful with each other's reputation and energy. I don't want to be haphazard with, you know, how I am representing somebody. For sure. Well, we're here with Tomas Carmelo Amaya. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Since the dawn of time, the salmon have returned. Compelled by instinct, they respond in the millions. A reminder that, with purpose and perseverance, we can chart the course of our future. As Bristol Bay Native Corporation has done for nearly 50 years, investing in future generations here in a place that's always been. We are back on the Native Artist Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Make sure to rate and review if you're enjoying the podcast. And hit that subscribe button to stay on top of upcoming episodes. We're here with film director, writer, cinematographer, and photographer Tomas Carmelo Amaya. You know, a lot of times, and we've had this discussion before, but a lot of times we see non-Indigenous companies and crews that are not part or connected to the community and coming in and doing these film projects and having these financial opportunities to film our native people. You know, you talk about intention and putting that up front and sometimes that's not seen by some people or done by some people. Have you ever worked on a project where you were sort of questioning the approach the crew was taking in coming into a native community? I definitely won't 
call anybody out. <laughs> but there's there's definitely been times. I mean, it was shocking, and then over time, it just became like, is this is this really a norm? Yeah. As far as kind of a, a lapse of I would say judgment or that care, that extra step of following protocol. There's a certain settler or colonial mindset that impacts how we have interactions. One of those qualities is extraction, and we see it, whether it's in resources and in different ways. So we can be extractive of culture. And when these occasions have happened, I think there's a lapse in judgment of these particular individuals not noticing that they're being extractive. Yeah. And the give back isn't exactly there. Because mm -hmm. they're making money. They're making money. You're making money off of these photos, and we're not getting anything back as a community. There's money to be made. They could be getting credibility. They could be getting access. So very quickly, if we go into those established spaces, they hit us with, oh, finder's fees, consulting fees. But if we tried to use that same language, it's kind of like, uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean? Like, how do you know this language? Why are you trying to monetize off of like, you know, like yeah. it, it gets weird. Yeah. And, and it's something that I've discovered over time. And I've talked to my peers about it. Instead of just being content with saying, oh, you as Native or Indigenous people want to be part of the conversation, we're including you. You're here. You're now at the table. You're physically here. You're but physically you're, here. Your voice isn't heard. Exactly. Yeah. Or, oh, compensation-wise, yeah, no budget. Sorry yeah. about that. Oh. But our work is either comparable or sometimes better. And you reached out to us because we have a portfolio and a reputation and then when we ask the question, <laughs> what's the compensation like? And what would the compensation be for a non-native? Yeah. It's just, you know, this is, a, I think, a very important discussion to have. And it's been probably occurring. But as we get more and more access to tools to storytell through different mediums, I feel like it's going to become more and more of an important topic for us to have and to advocate for each other to create that wave of value, of uh, respect for what we do. Over time, I feel like it, it has been leading in a good way, but there's still lots of work to do. To go back to your question, there there have been instances of microaggressions on set. If I do want to voice myself as an indigenous person and call out something that I feel is perhaps infringing on somebody's livelihood or someone's not coming correct, mm -hmm. and I want to voice that, it's been quelled. It's It's been dismissed. Even in artistic direction, I remember... You talking a little bit about that, if you're documenting Native people and if a Native person comes to you and says, you know, I'm not sure about this, it's really important to listen to those people because you don't know how you could be disrespecting a community or using clothing or garments wrong. Yes, absolutely. It, it's a symptom of, of this continued tokenization of Indigenous people. And as an Indigenous person, I'm always mindful. I'm like, I don't want to be disrespecting anybody's community. And one thing I lead with a lot of times too is I am an indigenous man, but I don't speak for all indigenous people. Yes. And because I'm bringing this up, I'm bringing it up in good faith and I see some red flags. And you're right, people dismiss. And I think it's part of the culture of efficiency. I've heard from other peers too that have worked on really big productions, big budgets and all that, that the extra steps it takes to do the due diligence and the due process of protocol and respecting a community and coming in correct and the give back is deemed inefficient and annoying 
but then we get the backlash. And it's funny because sometimes if we shift the paradigm and speak from a business sense, it almost takes that to say, look, either you do the work now and you do it correct and you do it in a good way, or it's going to come and get you. It's going to come back to you. And we could talk about recent examples like that <laughs> Dior yeah. campaign. I 100% was just thinking that right now. Like, I was like, that, wow. That I don't was... know all the details. Yeah. Big fail, major fail. Major and fail. native Twitter, clap back. <laughs> <laughs> all yeah. the native people. <laughs> and you know, people talk about how there's too much cultural sensitivity today, but that's a perfect example of the continued disregard for indigenous people today and And there's a lot of work to do. There's still ways to go, but it's exciting to see Indigenous filmmakers such as yourself and others helping to push those conversations. But I want to go into one of your recent projects that you collaborated with the Native Wellness Institute on, the Tacona Project, which touches on toxic masculinity while paying tribute to our matriarchs. But from the perspective of a young Native man named Tacona, tell us about how this project came together. So the Tacona Project is very near and dear to my heart, and it was co-directed with Shailene Joseph. I wrote the script and co-directed and did cinematography and a few other things. It's one of those poly-hyphenate roles that I had. Many hats. Yeah. And um, it was actually a call to action from this organization called Art with Impact. Art with Impact, from my understanding, is about removing the taboos that surround mental health. And they offer certain grants, film grants and other arts grants uh, that support projects that talk about these taboos or at least address it from a caring place. And so we put our, our heads together and we're like, let's go for it. You know, let's take this healthy risk. Let's tell a story that is caring, but is also shedding light in a way that reaches more audiences. Tacona is about a young indigenous man internalizing different aspects of daily life and specifically life in the city, navigating through the complexities of being an urban native and then also going out to rural places. And then even more specifically on this smaller segment that we've released of Tacona, it's talking about some of the toxic masculinity that we see. And that's not exactly specific to indigenous men, but at large, but also how There are other aspects of whether it's microaggressions, stereotypes that influence those types of feelings that indigenous young men can have. And it's not to say or to excuse any behaviors. It's just to inform, to shed light on some of the transgressions that go through the mind of this character in Tacona. And as a, you know, young man yourself, and you wrote the poem, I'm sure it was easy for you to sort of draw from your own experiences growing up in the city of Phoenix here. Yes, I grew up in West Phoenix. Shout out West Phoenix. And when we talk about a hood, it can mean so many different things. When we talk about the hood in Chicago, we talk about the hood in Phoenix, talk about the hood in Seattle, even in Alaska, it can mean so many different things. But a lot of times the common denominators are a higher concentration of there could be substance abuse, you know, there could be um, boarded up houses, there could be just lower resources, some of those things. So that was my environment. In that, I definitely saw like cultural things that were happening, like the way that we speak about women, the way that we uh, carry ourselves, the way that we size each other up. Not only because I have sisters, but because I have some of those indigenous teachings, they were clashing with some of the messaging that I was getting, either from kicking it on the street or from the music I was listening to. And I'm like, this, there's some conflict here. I don't want to talk about women like that. 
I don't see it. I don't see the the good in it. And so that definitely influenced like a certain place of where I was coming from and some of those feelings that I had. One of the other things I appreciate too, his name is Shadron Joseph. His indigenous name or native name, people call it different things, is Tacona. He gave us the blessing to use Tacona, which means wolf in Athabascan. Tacona was filmed in Portland, Oregon. While in post-production of editing the short film, Tomas's paternal grandmother passed away. Dealing with the loss, he was able to channel his grief into the poem that set the narrative for the project. When I went to go honor her and her passing, it definitely opened up that expression that I talked about before, about writing another poem. The words flowed, and on a, on a plane flight, a short plane flight, those words came. And when I talked to one of my mentors, Jalene Joseph, she said, yeah, that's your grandma speaking through you. That's a lot of people speaking through you, wow. that the way those words came. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of that poem, you know, you're honoring our matriarchs. Absolutely. You can tell that you did draw from that experience, even though it was not a pleasant one. It was a way that your ancestors were gifting you in a way, too. Absolutely. Where I'm excited to explore even more about honoring our matriarchs is all the different ways in which our our matriarchs are resilient. A lot of times I do speak about the strength and the care that our our matriarchs can give, like the way that I felt loved by my mom or from my grandma. But it's also the that protective mode, that going above and beyond to protect life. It's about that protective strength. Like matriarchs are strong to protect. A lot of times we talk about men protecting our matriarchs, but I'm all about it going the other way. You know, the earth protects us. And we have a duty and it goes back and forth and we have all these different teachings and from different you know tribes we can talk about it. But I love also working with you, Alexis, because I think we start to really start to navigate those spaces. And not only do we try to address tokenization or stereotypes of native people, but also of our matriarchs and how they're represented. It doesn't have to be one way. And I want everyone in our community to feel included and celebrated in all the different ways that we express ourselves. Yeah, that's a beautiful piece. And where can people check out Tacona? You can check out Tacona at TaconaFilm.com. And we're expecting to make a longer version. So if you like what you see, uh, please be on the lookout for further updates on, on where we're at with the project. If you want to connect with me, you can most of the times find me at Tomas Carmelo. Yeah, look me up that way. My last name is Amaya. Sometimes I include that name as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and your artist name honors your parents because your real name isn't Tomas Carmelo. No. Right? It's your honoring. Won't, I will not share my government name. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know it. I, <laughs> so, I won't hey. tell anyone. <laughs> Has copies of all my important documents. Uh, <laughs> so at the time that I, I started noticing that I was, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this art thing. I'm yeah. doing this art thing. Got to establish uh, yourself. I got to establish myself. And I said, well, I want to honor my mom. My mom's name is Carmen. I already have my dad's name, Tomas. It's only fair and only right that I honor my mom. So I, I thought of different variations of Carmen, and I came up with Carmelo, and then I chose the K, because K is not as common in the Spanish language. And I also, I don't know, I wanted to do a nod to something different. In one of my tribes, we have a, a naming ceremony, and that hasn't happened yet, so I didn't want to go too crazy with naming myself that, mm-hmm. something that I have not earned or have yeah. not been given, so... Yeah. Well, it was so good to talk to you and, and talk about these projects and really touch on some stuff that we don't hear a lot, especially about, you know, working in the industry as an indigenous person and your intentions behind projects. Thanks for joining us on the Native Artist Podcast today, man. 
Yeah, make sure to like and subscribe. Yes, like comment. crazy. If you get arthritis or carpal tunnel, don't blame us, but please do it a lot. <laughs> get your mom's, dad's phones, your sisters, you know, <laughs> subscribe, subscribe. Thank you guys for joining us today. All right, thank you. Alakwa. You can find out more about the Native Artist Podcast at nativeartistpodcast.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to rate, subscribe, and comment. Theme music by Inuk artist Reet. Additional music in this episode from Ray Remington, Samantha Crane, Boogie the Beat, and Quetzal Guerrero. The Native Artist Podcast is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Siri Foundation, supporting Alaska Native education, culture, and heritage since 1982, and Bristol Bay Native Corporation. This episode is produced by me, your host, Alexis Salee. This has been a production of Indigify. <laughs>